This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The Japanese bought Rockefeller Center. Like, oh my God, the end of the Republic is coming. Prepare yourself. Buy canned goods and gold bullion in your shotguns. And it has never worked. And that is fundamentally at the core because their economic system is not based on democratic values. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow, and this is our weekly roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they are shaping the political landscape. And on today's outstanding panel, returning to the roundup, senior advisor at the California Latino Economic Institute, my fellow co-founder of the Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at USC, the one and only Mike Madrid. Welcome back, Mike. How are you doing this morning? Tanned, rested, and ready. Man, I've been off the show for a little bit, but that just means I've been preparing for a long, long time. (laughs) Buckle up. Also returning to the roundup, Hagar Shamali. Hagar is a former spokesperson for the U.S. Mission to the U.N. and at the Treasury's Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence. She's also served as Senior Policy Sanctions Advisor at the Department of Treasury and a Middle East Director at the National Security Council in the Obama White House. She is an adjunct professor at Columbia University School of International and Public Affairs and the host and creator of Oh My World on YouTube, a show that breaks down geopolitics and world news stories in a fun and easy way. And she occasionally moonlights over at MSNBC. Hagar, thank you for being here. How are you doing? Thank you. I am doing great. I'm on my vacation for my vacation and very lucky to be that way. And like Mike, I'm ready to dive back in to the shitstorm of news. Shitstorm of news, indeed. Up first this week, uh, it is a busy news week. We've got stories about U.S.-China relations from their summit with Russia and other allies. Xi's disappearing act, their real estate crisis, the four-year-long influence campaign they ran on social media platforms, and the fact that you might unknowingly be funding the Chinese military and its surveillance state. Then we're going to look at why Republican voters still believe Trump is their best shot at beating Joe Biden and why we can't expect the 14th Amendment to keep Donald Trump from taking office. Finally, for our Politicology Plus subscribers, we're going to dive into a discussion about how artificial intelligence could bring a new dawn for humanity and how it will shape our elections and be a tool for bad actors on the world stage. To get ad-free access to the show, plus many more special episodes on a private podcast feed, head over to politicology.com slash plus, or click the link at the top of today's show notes. Last week, leaders from Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, also known as the BRICS nations, met in Johannesburg, along with representatives from 60 other countries. It was the largest summit the BRICS nations have ever held. Some of the key takeaways could have major implications in the United States. And we'll dive into their expansion plans and Xi Jinping's mysterious disappearing act and some other news on China in a minute. But before we do, we should unpack some things about the actual bloc and the summit. Vladimir Putin could not actually attend the event in person because South Africa would have been required to arrest him for war crimes he's been charged with. Two of the members, India and China, have a simmering border conflict. Hagar, 
Can you set the table for us, help us understand why these five countries have formed a block in the first place? What's the TLDR on the BRICS nations? And then we'll move on to the real news. Sure. So, I, yes, I think it's a great idea to set a little bit of background on the BRICS um, yeah. and who they are. So they were established in 2009. It was Brazil, Russia, India, and China that originally launched this group in 2009. It would, and the concept of it, by the way, was uh, was started by an analyst at Goldman Sachs in a report that he wrote years before that. Um, and so, and then in 2010, they added South Africa. So this group for a long time had wanted to expand. Their goal is really as they say, is to promote peace, security, development, and economic cooperation. And they operate on consensus. So every state in there needs to agree on whatever decision it is they make. And for a long time, a lot of experts have wondered whether they pose a real threat to the American economy, because that's always seemed to be the underlying motive, whether explicit or not, uh, and it, it, to, to provide this kind of counterweight to U.S. economic prowess, Western economic prowess, to uh, a counterweight to the strength of the U.S. dollar. And um, by and doing that by kind of having these countries join together, and the fact is that they've never they've never been able to do that. They've never really remotely been able to pro- to pose a threat. But uh, for sure, they've had success among themselves because they're they're talking about economic cooperation, creating deals amongst each other. China and Russia, who who they are really the loudest leaders of of this of this uh, tent, if you will, have wanted to expand for a long time. China in particular, and so they've now expanded to countries that, for me, I can see what they're trying to do with their expansion. They've included countries like Iran, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Egypt, uh, and Ethiopia, for example. And uh, I think that's it. There may be a one or two I'm missing. Argentina. And, Argentina, thank you. And if you've noticed, none of these countries really have much in common, except that they are, for the large part, heavy in certain resources, um, in, in natural resources of some kind. But they are not on the same page at all, whether it comes to their own <laughs> geopolitics, uh, certainly Iran and Saudi Arabia, for example, regardless mm-hmm. of the, the deal they brokered with China, um, or, or, uh, or geopolitics when it comes to Ukraine and Russia, uh, their positions on how pro-West they are. For example, Brazil and India had a lot of concerns about expanding the group this way because it felt like an effort on the part of China to be anti-Western. And, uh, and we'll probably dive into this later, but the statement that was delivered by China's Minister of Commerce at the event was blatantly anti-Western. And, um, so all this to tell you, the bottom line is, uh, it's been around now for over a decade, and uh, that is its goal is to try and reduce the U.S. ability to use its economic power and to possibly de- uh, contribute to a decline in dollar dominance as a global reserve currency. But they have never achieved that, and I don't expect this move to help them get closer to that goal. You don't expect them to get closer to that goal because of this expansion. So we're up to 11 countries now, I think, if I'm counting correctly, who have all signed on to the idea that we need an alternative to the U.S. dollar as the world's reserve currency. That's right. I do not expect them to achieve that goal. On the contrary, I think just, and there are many reasons for that. You don't see it as posing a real threat to, to dollar hegemony. Nope, I don't. Okay. I, no, okay. not at all. I think okay. this is a new club of thugs for the most part, and uh, for for the for the most part. And uh, this will this has been a goal tried through the BRICS, 
attempted through a number of banks that the BRICS, one bank that the BRIC, the BRICS set up, a bank that China has set up. It has been attempted by Iran before and it has never worked. And that is fundamentally at the core because they don't have, their economic system is not based on democratic values. And that ultimately has been proven around the world to be what contributes to strong economic behavior and values and, and future. And that's, that's, that's blatantly why. But there's also a lot of examples proving that, that they just, they don't have um, they don't have a lot of proof in their concept. Mm-hmm. Okay, so then the question is, and then I love Mike to weigh in on this: is how does adding these countries to the block shape the influence that figures like Xi Jinping and Putin will have over the rest of the world? And what is it, what ultimately does that mean for the U.S.? I tend to view both geopolitics and domestic politics uh, somewhat similarly because they're based off of human behavior and what people are trying to accomplish. I, I think this latest BRICS convening was kind of disastrous for them because what what it's demonstrated really is kind of, I think we're starting to see what this is really about. There's been a lot of fear about a rising China and Russia's behind them. There's a military aggression. The Saudis are going to back a move to take away our currency. And there's this kind of uh, typical American fear, right? Where, where we always believe someone's about to take over our empire, right? Back in the eighties, it was Japan. The Japanese bought Rockefeller center. Like, Oh my God, the end of the Republic is coming. Prepare yourself, buy canned goods and gold bullion in your shotguns. And, and then there, the, the, the truth of the matter is what, what, and I think this is largely a drill run by China where China's trying to say, not everybody's a U.S. ally and we're going to be the leader of the anti-U.S. coalition. Uh, we're going to focus as much as we can on the global south, but let's not pretend like there's this U.S. hegemonic, which is the term the Chinese often use when describing the United States. This, this, it, they're, they're the they're the uh, anti-establishment, right? They're the anti-U.S. hegemon, and what 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 I think what she was trying to do is trying to do is demonstrate that there is a broad, moneyed, resourced, diverse coalition of, of, of people, countries, nations in the world that don't like this world order and are willing to join up and say that they can. Now, that that's great. But it's one thing to have a coalition like that. The other is to execute it into something that can actually be mobilized. And as Agar was just saying, the main point is the currency, right? That's the main. That's the main objective is to um, unbalance or undermine the, the the dollar as the main currency of the world, the reserve currency of the world. But but even beyond that, the way this the way BRICS is governed is you have to have unanimity. Like you, everybody has to basically agree on a on a basic policy. I'm not sure they could agree on lunch. Let alone, let alone, you know, <laughs> trying to, trying to, you know, uh, you know, make a uh, overthrow the dollar and, and make you know some massive moves. And BRICS again was established in 2009. This was pre-Crimean invasion. The U.S. military, the the, the right. Russian military has been cut in half. The ruble is collapsing. Putin is a, is an is a villain around the world. Like this is not a good look. Right. If you're yeah. trying to demonstrate yeah. world global leadership, which she is clearly trying to do, this was not a good look. This was not a good look for China where people are saying, oh, hey, there's an alternative to the United States. I think, in fact, this was a dramatic step backwards for BRICS. And I think it's good to hear Agar talking about the currency. She obviously knows a lot more about that than I do. But I think politically, this is not a this is not a coalition that's ready for prime time. So then, Hagar, what are the cliffs notes on why Xi Jinping surprisingly didn't go to the meeting? Like he just didn't, he was supposed to go, he did go to South Africa, but then he didn't show up at the meeting. 
Yes. It's, you know, this is, this is, there's definitely something there, there, because it is very unlike him to, to make a last minute move like that, where he's not showing up for something, especially when he's in the country, right? He's in the country for this event. He was there, didn't show up for the speech at the last minute. His commerce minister delivered it instead. And the Chinese media deliberately tried to play it down as though some of them didn't even Hmm. cover it for that reason. And, but they tried to make it seem like, you know, this was normal. And again, as Mike mentioned, he made sure to make his talking points about the hegemony and so on. And, um, but the thing is, we can't know what happened, only that something acute definitely happened, whether it was related to illness, a sudden illness of some kind, whether it was related to some kind of pressing matter he had to tend to. Um, it doesn't seem that it was related to any kind of specific development at the event because this is something China wanted. They wanted to expand this way. They view this as a win for them. And so I don't think it had anything to do with that. But the thing is, I don't know if it was illness either because he showed up at the dinner later that day. And, uh, and so, you know, unless he was, you know, vomiting from Ozempic, you know, maybe <laughs> then yeah. I don't think that, <laughs> that, that there was anything, uh, that there was anything major there, probably a pressing matter of some kind, but we still don't know. We still don't know, but it is definitely something, you know, have, it's caused journalists to run amok because there is a story there with the fact that he didn't attend. Okay. I want to turn to, uh, the, the economic news here for a second, because Mike, you sent me something, um, not too long ago. Uh, which is before the BRICS summit kicked off, one of China's biggest property developers, we've talked about them before, Evergrande, filed for Chapter 15 bankruptcy protection in Manhattan. Now, Evergrande had racked up more than $300 billion in debt as it expanded really aggressively to become one of China's biggest companies. And this week, shares in the company fell by nearly 80% in their first day of trading in Hong Kong in over 18 months. Uh, Sunday, they posted a $4.5 billion loss for the first six months of the year. They're at the center of the real estate market crisis in China, but they aren't alone. Um, Country Garden, which is another major property developer in China, warned that it could see a loss up to $7.6 billion for the first six months of the year. And these major losses are coming right as China's central bank cut one of its key interest rates for the second time in three months after falling exports and weak consumer spending. So there's a question here I'd love both of you to help untangle. First, Mike, why do you think this is such significant news? And also, Hagar, what are we to make of China's central bank cutting interest rates while the rest of the dollarized world are raising interest rates, their central banks are raising interest rates in order to curb inflation? Yeah, I, I've brought up the Evergrande situation on episodes here on Politicology before because I think it's something that we've needed to watch for some time. There are some really, really significant fundamental problems with China's economy. And again, it's, it's, it's typical for us as Americans to look out at this threat abroad and be like, oh, they're stronger than us. They're going to, you know, they're talking to our children. They're going to, you know, parachute in with air balloons and take over us. There's something very kind of paranoid about the American psychology there. But China's got a, a massive problem in its real estate market, which isn't just going to potentially affect China's markets, there's the potential to drag down the global system. It's that big. This is enormous. This is the largest, essentially, real estate holding company in the world. And right now, you've got hundreds, probably thousands of of residential and commercial uh, real estate sitting empty and has been for months. Most of their most of their uh, build is done on spec in China. A lot of this stuff is half built. Uh, not broken ground or sitting empty shells, thousands and thousands of of properties 
um, with no likelihood for this stuff to to be built. Now, keep in mind, it's it's not just this debt problem, which is significant and extraordinary enough. There's the deflationary piece. And again, Hagar will talk about this in a little bit, but that deflationary piece is extraordinarily problematic too, because it's moving in a different direction than the rest of the world. And one of the pieces that uh, economists are looking at, but I think we'll start to enter the global chat in just a little bit, is the demographic problem that China is also running into. So, look, a lot of this is telling me, uh, as a casual observer, somebody who's you know interested in geopolitics and studied it as an undergraduate back in the day, that you know expansionism is oftentimes a tool of last resort as a way for the authoritarian to hold on to power, right? And and China has never really done expansionism particularly well. Uh, a, a, a lot of countries haven't done it particularly well, but but China's culture, China's mindset is really the exact opposite, right? It's called the Hermit Kingdom for a reason. China's never really been an aggressor nation beyond its borders. Yeah, you know, obviously there's there's issues with Pakistan and with India right now, and 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 with the Uyghurs, and there there are these issues, but it's never been like let's roll tanks on Russia, right? Let's go take over. Uh, it's it's never it's never been. Uh, in, in the way that we have looked at kind of imperialism as this as this entity that is trying to to stamp its 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 uh, military might as a way of of accruing territory or resources, it, it has in its own Chinese way done what it has been doing recently in the past two decades, which is buying resources, using its its softer influence and softer diplomacy to go out and and have a larger, broader realm and sphere of influence, especially through ownership. But that doesn't count for a whole hell of a lot when your economy, when the fundamentals of your own economy are perhaps coming unwound. And that might be too strong of a statement. I don't know. I'm not an expert on the Chinese economy. I'm not too sure how many there are because of the data that we get out of China, what's really happening. We just don't know. But what I do know is there are some very, very big alarm bells going off. The number one, in my mind, being this Evergrande situation where moving a debt bubble of this size is impossible to do without repercussions. You can kick it down the road, but that bubble will get bigger. And it is bigger than the first time we talked about Mm. this just six, seven months ago. And it's going to keep getting bigger if they try to to, to inflate their way out of it uh, in some way, shape, or form, uh, even though they're in this deflationary cycle. Like, how, how do you swallow this this big of an elephant if you're the snake i i, I don't know we're going to find out but i would i would not want to be xi Jinping right now considering uh you know a collapsing ally to the north with russia a, a united west uh as a result a deflationary period mm. a, col- a a massive massive debt bubble and a demographic uh population bomb, which is all going to really, I think, hamper China's growth prospects and certainly tarnish its image as a potential world leader to to replace or even compete with the United States on the global stage. Hagar, you've been nodding along. Help us help us unpack with this, especially the interest rate, you know, interest rate cuts while everybody else is hiking and what this means for the U.S. economy. First, Mike, everything he said, yes, I was nodding along because I agree with all of it. And because it's a symptom of a larger problem in in China. So if we focus first on this on the interest rates, their aim is to reduce interest rate costs for home buyers um, and to boost consumption because of the slowing economy. And the main 
key word here is this slowing economy. In China, a, a country that has been benefiting from massive growth for the last few decades, basically. And it's, it is, as Mike said, it's going to have reverberations across the world, but I, but I want to hone in back on the slowing economy because they're facing this sloth, this slow, um, this decline, if you will, on all fronts. On the Evergrande part, they're having difficulty raising capital. You have rising costs. You have a general slow um, decline because of their pandemic and and how they addressed the pandemic with their lockdown controls um, and how draconian they were and how that's been off-putting as well between that and and their human rights abuses, how off-putting that's been to foreign investment. And then you have also, by the way, policies, but from the U.S. government that are, that, you know, the U.S. government is trying to catch up on this, on preventing certain investment in in areas of Chinese of China's economy or industry or or business that have to do with surveillance or technology or so on. And um, so you've got this overall growth, and they started to grow a little bit more. They had growth last year. Last quarter it was four point five percent. The quarter after, the most recent one was six point three percent, which was greater than expected. But the fact is that. There's some a small piece of news that not a lot of people covered that ties back to the BRICS thing and, and to what Mike is saying. So uh, about a month ago or two, China's the BRICS had established something called the New Development Bank, which is based in Shanghai. China's the one that led it and has now stopped making new loans. And while it was created to counter the dollar, is having trouble raising dollar funds to repay its debts. So something that was created to counter the dollar now needs the dollar. Um, in that is one of the two China-based multilateral lenders. Its larger cousin called the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank has now landed itself in a scandal because executives are accusing it of being controlled by China's Communist Party. And all of this, and this is why I say that that term about the slowing economy is what's so key here, is all of these are symptoms of a larger problem, which is China's general slowing economy, that it is going to be very difficult for it to come to pull out of it without fundamental changes to its economic system, its economic policies. That means changes, by the way, to how Xi Jinping controls China and how he pursues his policies. And so all of this effort, the brick, the expanding of the BRICS, the uh, rhetoric that comes from the Chinese leader and and the, at least the communist, the the minister of communism, sorry, oh my God, the minister of commerce, sorry for that slip, at, um, at the BRICS, all of it to me comes off as pomp and circumstance. However, Mike has really made a key point here that the Evergrande thing in particular, and they've filed for bankruptcy here in, in Manhattan, it, it, it's because it could have real ramifications. These are major bodies that, st- and we're all in a globalized geopolitical world where we're interconnected. Of course, it's going to have an effect and, and uh, at a time when we here are struggling with, uh, trying to fix inflation here and, and the continuation, continuation of boosting interest rates and so on. Okay, you brought up a really good segue to the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is this the U.S. relationship with China and what we have been doing to try and crack down on investment in certain uh, areas. Earlier this week, the Washington Post published this op-ed by Congressman Mike Gallagher, who leads the House Select Committee on the Strategic Competition between the U.S. and China. And the premise of the piece was that many Americans are unwittingly investing in companies aligned with China's military and the human rights abuses by the Uyghurs. And I thought, 
rhetorically, it was really brilliant the way he started it off. He raises these questions. Do you want your pension paying for China's aircraft carriers? Should your university's endowment be underwriting the Chinese Communist Party's genocide against the Uyghur people? Would you like your retirement savings to be powering the CCP's techno-totalitarian surveillance state? These aren't hypothetical questions. And then he goes on to explain uh, that he's been investigating uh, prominent financial institutions like MSCI and BlackRock, which are funding companies that advance the CCP's military, their human rights abuses, and their surveillance apparatus. He acknowledges what you mentioned earlier, that Biden has taken initial steps toward restricting U.S. investment into certain Chinese companies, but that it isn't enough. And I, I, to understand why it isn't enough, you need to understand how these kinds of investments work. What the Biden administration has proposed is a very narrow restriction on certain subcategories of, uh, of industries. But the problem is that 83% or something of the money that ends up getting invested in these companies by U.S. dollars go, is, is um, the vehicle are ETFs and, uh, and pension funds and other kinds of investment vehicles where the, it isn't direct investment. You're investing in a, in a mutual fund, for example, that happens to hold a lot of uh, stock in these companies. So most of it goes around uh, what the Biden administration is proposing. And he proposes a five-part plan, which is expand transparency on investments going into a China, prohibit investments that bolster their military, that support their human rights abuses, and that aid in their surveillance state, uh, to delist Chinese companies that don't offer basic protections and rights to U.S. investors, focus on sectors critical to China's ambitions instead of targeting individual companies, and ensure that the U.S. financial system remains stable. So as we think about the potential for even more grappling for position between the U.S. and Chinese government, how can we handle the potential business interests for Americans in the, inv- in the advancement China can make to further threaten the U.S.? Uh, it, do you think the Biden administration's proposal, in other words, goes far enough, or do you think he's onto something and that we ought to be more serious about how much U.S. the U, you know, U.S. dollars, pension funds, et cetera, mutual funds, uh, are 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 funding you know missiles tanks uh, weaponized AI capabilities uh, etc. And then while Hagar's thinking about that, Mike, I'd love for you to think about how effective this line of rhetoric is going to be on the Republican side because I take Mike Gallagher to get pretty serious Republican, not necessarily one of the showboaters, and and whether this uh, this hard line on China um, is going to be a, an effective line of argumentation in the in the presidential campaign. Um, Hagar, I'll start with you. Okay. So I, well, there, there are a couple things here that even I struggle with a little bit because for, so first Mike Gallagher has been, you know, pounding the pavement on this issue for, for a while now. And I would, I would position him on China specifically as he's been very loud about this issue and his rhetoric tends to be very strong. And the, the thing with his op-ed is that, I on on one hand, I am very much in favor, especially as somebody, by the way, who worked in counterlicit finance and sanctions. I believe very much in using the tools in our financial toolkit uh, to ensure that we that that criminal behavior, that threatening behavior, is undermined, and that it certainly, of course, doesn't pose a threat to us. That we're not doing anything to enable that or or fund it, and 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 furthermore, that we are actually actively cracking down on it. So I am in favor of things that this kind of strategic, deliberate, surgical efforts 
to ensure that we are not actively promoting or supporting China's military um, and AI efforts like that. But the problem I had with his op-ed in total, especially at the end, um, at the end of it, when he kind of broadened it out to, to, to ban general like uh, certain investments and so on, the problem with it is that it's a little bit a declaration of war or a declaration of economic war. And I'm not sure that that's what we want. Uh, I'm not, I have anybody, anybody who watches my show knows I have the Chinese government and Xi Jinping on my shit list every other week. <laughs> so I'm not coming at this from a naive standpoint, but the, but we don't want war with China and we don't want a cold war with China either. And the thing, thankfully, that would prevent a cold war and that I believe will likely prevent a cold war is that our economies are still intertwined. Since 2018, trade between the US and China has only gone up. And that without with it, while ensuring that it doesn't contribute to uh enhancements of course in in ai in military uh developments in technology that would enhance their surveillance or certainly surveillance of us and and so on of course there's always going to be that risk but you want that because you don't want to land in war and that was my problem with his op-ed was that it was a little bit of a like you know what we're done with you china and we're going to behave we're going to do everything we can and i'm because at the end of the day, you could argue that anything that benefits China's economy is ultimately going to go toward certain activity or behavior that would end up threatening the United States. And the same goes for here. We are competitive. We know that. Um, there has been a big effort now, you can see, because the, a lot of this rhetoric over the last year has gotten very strong. And on both sides, by the way. And you can see in the last few months, there's been this effort on the Biden administration to pump the brakes a little bit. And that happened after the spy balloon when all diplomatic talks fell apart. There was no way we could talk to them. All channels of communication had ended. And then they made an effort and you know we can opine on on whether the, the whether there was a bit too much there because blinken went and then it was followed by uh, secretary yellen and then it was followed by secretary kerry and right now as we speak the us secretary of commerce is there and so there has been a lot of us like a flock of us officials to china to ensure these channels of communication don't don't fall apart but there's a reason for that it's because war is not in our interest and this was my issue with his op-ed. I just think we could take some of his his ideas. I like some of them that are niche and surgical, and but without going too far off the deep end and and making China believe that this is that we're on the path to a complete division. So essentially, he's sidestepping in this op-ed the reality that China's manufacturing economy is the largest in the world, dwarfs the U.S. and Europe put together, and also we have a trillion-dollar trade deficit with them. Yeah, Just he didn't even mention that. For starters. Yeah, <laughs> he right. didn't even I know. mention so that like, they <laughs> own most of our debt. <laughs> like, right. Dude, what are you thinking? Calm down. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, Mike, those realities notwithstanding, the rhetoric is strong and it's resonating with Republican voters. I was looking at some Pew research from earlier this uh, this year, I think it was from April or May 2023, that just sh highlights that, you know, there are double digit, um, du double digit polling percentages where Democrats and Republicans differ on China and how strong we should be on China. It's sort of throughout the questionnaire, it's, you know, be anywhere between 10 and 20 and 30 percent of a divide between, you know, how, how strong or 
how weak we should be on China, how skeptical we are of China. And there's a, there's a very clear partisan divide here. And so I wonder if that has something to do with why Republicans are talking so much about China instead of Russia, for example. Yeah, and there's actually some close friends who who uh, yeah, I've known for many years that are are still kind of in that Fox News echo chamber. Who who are like the real threat is China. Why are we focused on Russia? We're not recognizing you know how how interlinked all of this is. But look, right. being anti-China is going to be what um, being anti-Soviet Empire was during the Cold War for the next couple of decades. Maybe hopefully not that long, but as I was mentioning earlier, I, I don't see any way out of the current challenges for China to be anything other than more expansionist. I think that she has got some very significant internal challenges and some very significant uh, uh, external challenges. And showing strength is going to be a way that I think he's going to not only have to consolidate power, but try to barrel through some of the winters of what he's going to be facing. That's not going to be good for him in the court of public opinion in the United States of America. And our politicians are going to respond to that. They're going to react to that. And the truth of the matter is they should. Now, I'm not saber rattling for war with China. I don't want war with China. And I love what Hagar just said. It's like, it sounds a little bit like a declaration of war. Like, <laughs> just a little bit pregnant. We're not too sure what we're doing here, but we're just, it's exactly right. Uh, she, she's exactly right. That's the tone. That's the tenor. And as we all know, especially with the Republican caucus, the likelihood of that little bit of war declaration is going to start getting a little bit louder every time the Chinese do something. Now, and the that, Chinese are listening to that. No, of course they, they are. And that but yes, that's but they're that, trying to out hawk each other. But that and that's exactly right. Now there's a danger there because you got these two trains heading on a collision course. And this is very much kind of the Cold War mindset, right? Is everybody has to recognize and respect everybody's domestic political situation. And the truth of the matter is, I'm I'm, and this might be the old guy in me, right? The the, the representing the older crowd here on politicology. I'm maybe used to the days where these global leaders uh, in a Cold War situation, and I think we're already there, by the way, with China in a Cold War, but it's having a domestic problem by saying, I'm negotiating because I've got a problem in my own country, how much my country doesn't like you. And, 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 and it's, it's that's old, Nixon going to China, right? It's that whole thing is I, I can kind of deliver because I've got some credibility, but we all know that my constituency really doesn't like this. So I can go only this far and you know, you so help me help you, help man. me help you. Right. And that's how this stuff gets negotiated. And I, and I'm not saying that that's why Gallagher's doing it, but what I am saying is that having a uh, very deep, strong concerns about a rising aggressor nation like China is not necessarily uh, against U.S. interests at the negotiating table or what it is that we're trying to accomplish. I'm also mm. not foolish enough to think that another President Trump might use this as an opportunity for tactical nuclear strikes in the <laughs> South China Sea. So this is not power yeah. that this is not power that you screw around with. China. Yeah. Yeah. This is not. Sorry. This is not. This is not. Yeah, that was Ron, by the way. That was not Mike. <laughs> but but what, I, what I will say, what I will say is, this is not the kind of raw power that you mess around with in the global stage because the stakes are too high. But I don't see any way for China to get out of where it's at at current pace without continuing to rattle the saber, uh, especially internationally. 
And we're going to have to be very judicious in how we respond, but I think we need to be very strong and measured in how we respond. And I think the last 24 months with what has happened in Ukraine and the resolve of the West has given us significant leverage to go back into into this arena and start saying, we told you this is what the West, this is where the West is, this is what our coalition looks like, and this is the way we are going to proceed. So you better be cautious yourself, she, because this is this this gets worse for you before it gets worse for us. Okay, so file this next story then on, in the bucket labeled uh, uh, "Okay, but we also learned from the New York Times this week that Meta has executed its largest ever removal of accounts linked to an influence campaign believed to have originated in China, and it's been going on for at least four years. That campaign pushed information on various platforms, including their flagship Facebook and Instagram, as well as TikTok and Substack and X, the platform formerly known as Twitter. And even on Chinese websites, there were over 7,700 Facebook accounts, over 900 Facebook pages, 15 groups, 15 Instagram accounts removed, several accounts on other platforms that have been identified as part of the campaign, but they are still active. Um, Researchers over at Graphica studied the campaign It initially focused on discrediting the 2019 pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong. Uh, Then in 2020, it shifted to the outbreak uh, of 2019 and uh, deflecting assertions that China was the origin of the coronavirus. They also pushed the story that the United States bombed the Nord Stream pipelines in the Baltic Sea. Uh, I'm also reminded of the conversation we had back in 2020 about the Russian influence campaign in 2016. And Camille Francois, who was working at Grafica, explained how these more sophisticated campaigns wouldn't just, you know, put out a tweet, but would create a blog post and sources for that blog post and then create the tweet so that it had a better chance of hoodwinking people. In this case, the operation published a 66-page research paper claiming that COVID started in the United States. And that research paper first appeared on uh, an online repository for researchers and academics to upload uh, papers and data sets. Then they created YouTube and Vimeo videos promoting the research paper. Then they created blog posts on LiveJournal and Tumblr and Medium, then took those videos and blog posts and published them out through social media channels. Like this was a deep, methodical operation. We lived through the 2016 influence campaign from Russia. There's been a lot of disagreement about how well tech companies handled the potential for foreign influence in the 2020 election cycle. It doesn't look like this was particularly geared at shifting the 2020 election, but there's no debate that every social media platform was on the lookout for it, every major one anyway, and this slipped by for over four years. So, Hagar, what does this say about how we're positioned as a global power, how we are adequately defending ourselves against Chinese information operations, and you know, uh, to me, this underscores the need to be tougher on China when it comes to U.S. dollars investing in uh, in their in their information capabilities. Tougher on China or tougher on social media? Because, uh, the- well, I mean, this originated in China. Where do you, I mean, who do you think was behind it? Well, so listen, when I saw this first great move by Meta to, to, to remove this, to find it and to remove it, I, as, as I've never, I've never really fully understood why it was so difficult. Sorry. I mean, you know, I've never worked on a social, in a social network. So, uh, so it's hard for me to fully understand, but as somebody who, 
who is a political satirist. I make a lot of fun of these guys and, and who, who puts these, them on my shit list all the time. I am pummeled with bots from China, Russia, uh, and Iran consistently. And now Niger, by the way, but that's a separate story. For some reason, they can easily like take down a political ad that the Lincoln Project made in 2020. The first breakout ad called Morning in America was censored by Facebook and we couldn't even show it to people. But in the meantime, China can run rampant. So that's, that's my point. Like I just, for, for years and certainly, but not only when I, while I was in government, um, and I was in government up until 2016. So still where you had a major growth of social media, but not as much as after I left, but I still stay very close with my friends in the, in, in the government. And they are, they've lamented how, how behind they've been on this issue. And that it's been a real struggle because the social media networks don't, for years didn't take this as seriously as they should. And now I have seen, by the way, a lot of these platforms hire folks from government left and right because they are trying to wrap their minds around the threat. Um, and they're trying to figure out the path forward while still staying true to their values of freedom of speech and, and so on. And it's murky and it's tricky and I get it. But that's also why I kind of think that Capitol Hill is is really behind on this. And so I want to get to that. So first, great for Meta that they did this. Thank you as I can as somebody who uses social media, depends on social media for their business. Thank you for finally cutting off some of these uh bots. There are so many more and we have known for years that this is that these governments are doing this. Russia does this. Um Rwanda does this. The Saudi government is infamous for this, for using these platforms, for exploiting them to their benefit, sometimes even placing uh, certain spies in these networks. We saw it twice happen at Twitter. Um, and, and so we've known that this is their behavior. So it's not surprising to me at all. This is a major part of their foreign policy, their national security objectives is to exploit U.S. tech companies to undermine our democracy because our democracy is the biggest threat to their own dictatorships. So we've known this for a long time. What um, the thing that I took away from it, number one, and I've said this for a while, Capitol Hill is very behind on regulating and it would make things a lot easier if they put in place certain regulations so that you didn't leave it up to the social media networks to figure out where the line is between freedom of speech and um, and preventing nefarious use of, of their platforms. So that's the first. But then the second is this highlights, it exposes in plain view the threats, the real threats posed and the reality of the threat posed by China and other dictatorships when they're able to do this, because that is the crux of the TikTok issue. And for a lot, a lot of people, you know, we keep hearing the US government saying it is a major threat. There's like some closed door briefing for Capitol Hill members and, and they walk out out of there saying like, holy cow, I'm taking TikTok off or hey, in Montana, I'm going to ban it or whatever. And they're not articulating as a comms person. I've always been frustrated at how they don't articulate the threat behind TikTok. And that is the threat. TikTok, and I'm sorry to move to that quickly, Yeah, no, has great. 150 million American users, most of whom are very young. So you're talking about, and that is a company that is owned, that is a Chinese owned company. Um, its parent company is ByteDance, China. China has a rule, by the way, is, as well, that if, if it wants data from any of its companies, it can demand it. Um, you're talking about a Chinese social media platform that has 150 million American users so holding the brains of the, of, of America's youth with, and, and, and we know, and this, this proves it, that they have an active goal and effort 
to pursue influence campaigns, to pursue propaganda, to spread disinformation and misinformation and so on. And that's, so that's why the TikTok issue is so big. I will say just two final, final points. One of the things that, that the minister, sorry, now I'm like confusing it all. I didn't have enough coffee. Um, the U.S. Commerce Secretary is in China talking about, uh, you know, TikTok. Yes. TikTok is on, um, is on her list. And she said that, quote, banning TikTok could lose every voter under 35 forever. So there is a goal here. They are trying to figure out how to handle this behemoth. And just last week, a, um, a draft deal was leaked to the press. It is an old deal from a year ago, um, but it was a deal drafted by the Committee on Foreign Investments in the United States, CFIUS, and and on on the measures that they would place on TikTok to allow it to operate. And the measures are very, very harsh. So I don't know where this deal is now, but it's fascinating. Things like controlling who works for TikTok, their high-level executives, audits at any time, um, and so on. So it's it, this is something definitely to watch. Okay, Mike, uh, two questions briefly, because I want to know whether you think this claim that losing every voter under 35 forever is a credible fear for uh, the Democrats. But second, more importantly, um, this is is raising, I think, one of the fundamental conundrums of liberal society in the 21st century, which is, you know, whether you're okay with it or not okay with it, we think of the U.S. as an influencer of other countries. And so what does it mean for us that the tables are flipped when they're flipped? What is it? How should we be wrestling with the reality that as a liberal society that values free and open speech and communication, these channels are being used against us by uh, by illiberal authoritarian actors. Well, just like people, the same characteristic is true of nations. Your greatest strength is usually your greatest weakness, right? And so the strength of the United States is a free and open society, and that's the back door within which some of these nefarious actors are going to go in and try to exploit it, and they've done a hell of a good job. But two things. The first is this, again, should be your weekly reminder that TikTok is the devil, as I've said before, <laughs> and we'll continue to say it. TikTok is the Trojan horse, right? It's this big horse being wheeled into the walls of Troy. Like, here it is. That's that's TikTok. Okay. Uh, the, the second is there's only 15 Chinese Instagram accounts that they found. <laughs> what, what's happening to the gram here? I mean, come on. Right? So, so uh, but, but Instagram's for the olds like me. Yeah. It's like, what happened? Like, and, 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 but, but, but there is, and look, let's, let's not also delude ourselves into believing a couple of things because it's easy to do that. The first is, yeah, they found this one operation. If you think the Chinese were just had one operation, you don't understand the nature of the network. The Russians have thousands of them. The Chinese have thousands of them. And you know what? Listen in really tightly here. The United States of America has thousands of them. If you don't think that we're not engaged in the same activity globally, doing the same thing with influence campaigns, I mean, come on, have another cup of coffee Mm because you all need to wake up and start paying attention to what's going on. (laughs) We have been doing this for a very long time. And the truth of the matter is we should. And and this is to the broader point that we are in a, I don't even want to call it a cold war. It's certainly not a hot kinetic war, but we are at war with Russia and China. 
Okay. When China is influencing our society in a way that is designed to undermine institutions and confidence in all of the things, including public opinion, belief and expertise, confidence in the government that uphold the way the American form of government and society works. That, that to me, that's an act of war. Okay. And that's what I was saying about Russia prior to 2016. This is not new. There is a reason why 70 million of us have been radicalized in this country. And I'm not using that term egregiously radicalized. Okay. When we saw people behaving the way that they're behaving, who happened to be Muslim, we were comfortable throwing out the radical Islam term. There are half of us in this country, at least half of us are behaving literally the exact same way. This is the result of PSYOPs campaigns and extremely sophisticated communications efforts. That's what is happening. And breaking into that bubble is very, very hard. It's why I believe TikTok as a platform in and of itself isn't just trying to influence the minds of our youth. They literally hold the minds of our youth. Our, their brains are on there in that platform. The statement that they will Democrats will lose voters under 35 forever is obviously silly. But there's a point. It's not. No, it's not true. It's absolutely not true. But what I will say is this. The point that is trying to be made is something that needs to be paid attention to. And so when I, in the previous segment, we're talking about Gallagher, talking about, you know, all these old ways of kinetic warfare. He should be as much focused on TikTok, and I'm not saying that he's mm-hmm. not, but he should also be focused on the NBA. He should be focused yeah. on all of these entertainment venues where all of these <laughs> eyeballs are watching because the war with China is not necessarily going to be launched with missiles, again, in the South China Sea. They're going to be launched with dancing videos on TikTok and messaging <laughs> that is being communicated to a very wide swath of our people. That is the way warfare is going to be engaged, and it already is being engaged in the digital yes. age. Russia is losing the kinetic war in the Donbass. I believe that. But I believe that they are winning a significant part of the war in the digital age. And they have been for some time. Hell, they got a president of the United States elected. Don't tell me they don't know what they're doing. They know exactly what they're doing, and they're damn good at it. And it's not just them engaged in it. It is the Chinese. It is the Iranian government. It are It is these nefarious actors, including organized crime elements that are transnational. So all of this is, is, is a sign of where we are at. We, we've got to remove, remove ourselves from the mindset that war is simply about tanks facing off in the middle of these fields out in Eastern Europe. That is not where the battlefield is in its entirety. It's true. Yeah. That is where a, the kinetic war is happening. But the war with much larger implications has been happening with some of these nations specifically Iran, specifically China, specifically Russia, for, for for many, many years now. And we are eyeballs deep into it. It's not beginning. It's been going on. And I don't want anybody to think that somehow we're we're on the defense on all of this either. We are mm-hmm. we are we are hip waders deep into aggressively communicating to these constituencies too. That's why Russia, you know, is trying to shut off its internet. They're not as good at it as the Chinese and why the Chinese have completely bubbled themselves off is because if we were able to communicate with their constituencies, if we were able to communicate with their populations the way that they are with ours, we would be looking at a completely different geopolitical framework at this point in time. 
And if you're not scared now, folks, you're going to want to listen to the plus <laughs> segment today because we're going to dive into AI and how it can make all of this easier to do and more effective. Uh, okay, but before we do that, we got to we got to we got to take a detour over to Trumpistan uh, as the as the criminal indictments have rolled in. It I've is, never heard uh, that. I like it. Trumpistan. We <laughs> use that. It's, it's remained clear that Donald Trump is the front runner in the 2024 Republican primary. Of course, last week, even without Trump on the stage for the first debate, none of the contenders were able to take uh, a big cut into his lead. With each of these four indictments, and in every news cycle around any of these updates, there have been the same tired conversations about how these legal woes are going to impact Trump's electability. And every single time I have said they're only going to accrue to his benefit. In the primary, uh, in a New York Times essay this week, Republican pollster Kristen Soltis Anderson, is an excellent pollster, by the way, argued that the Republican base isn't concerned about Trump's electability. In fact, they think he's their best bet. In a recent New York Times poll, 56% of Republicans said they believe we are, quote, in danger of failing as a nation. Uh, we saw this bit on full display during the debate when Ramaswamy said, it's not morning in America, we live in a dark moment. And then Ron DeSantis hit the line, America is in decline, right? So Kristen argues that this uh, fatalistic view is causing Republicans to see Joe Biden as beatable and that even after losing the 2020 election and having a disappointing 2022 midterm, most Republicans are confident that their candidate, especially Donald Trump, will beat Joe Biden easily in 2024. And in a CBS News poll, 81% of likely Republican primary voters said that having the best chance at beating Biden was very important. And in a question about choosing between someone who agrees with your positions on most issues, uh, who would have a harder time beating Biden, or has the best chance of beating Joe Biden, even if you don't agree with them, 76% of respondents picked having the best chance of beating Joe Biden. So, Mike, I think the question here is, how do we, how do we make it clear that the Republican electorate really isn't interested in... A lot of the narrative is about, how do we get the Republican Party to move on past Trump? But nobody is interested in that. It's not about... like. I hear so many commentators saying, oh, we just need to give them an off-ramp in a, in a more palatable candidate. But it seems clear that nobody's interested in a more palatable candidate. Yeah, yeah that's not, this is not news, by the way. Right. Let me, let me, let me, so we should finally disabuse ourselves. If, if there are any remnants of people who, who are of that mindset, uh, you, you need to stop with the attempts to educate and persuade people of a better way. They're at where they're at. They're there for a reason. You can, you know, navel gaze all you want about the reasons. I've been doing it for many years. I've got some, I think, very solid theories as to why, but none of that matters. The, 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 the game is afoot. The battle is engaged. This is an existential fight for this country between two relatively equal, um, equally balanced sides. I think the side that is fighting against this cult, against authoritarianism, is not only not only has uh, a numeric advantage and a moral advantage, I think that there's increasingly a demographic advantage, and we can talk about that for just a second. But what I want to talk, what I want to do is address specifically, and again, I don't want to get into the methodology of the poll because I, I never would have asked the questions that way. I don't think that they were telling us anything 
by the way, because I don't think any one of those 75 or 80% of people who said, uh, you know, it's important that I agree with somebody on these policy issues can actually articulate five policy positions that Donald Donald Trump stands for. It's not about policy. It hasn't right. been for a long time, and this is where I get really frustrated with Democrats who kind of keep putting forward these policy proposals as if it's somehow that they're right on the policy that they're going to convince Donald Trump supporters to move their way. Okay, That's not the way you win. In a head-to-head, Joe Biden versus Donald Trump, Biden wins. And what I really want to point out is the specificity of this op-ed and this pollster. I believe she's talking about Republicans. Yeah. Talking about Republicans. Donald Trump's support levels, and it's not just Donald Trump's, by the way. DeSantis is is almost exactly where Donald Trump is at with independence. A historic low for a nominee of either party heading into a presidential campaign at this level at this moment in time. These indictments are killing Trump, and they are killing uh, Republicans with the way voters view and who they view as the extreme element in this society. The voters are getting it. Independents are getting it, and they are not having it with Donald Trump. Now, can anything happen? Of course it can. Let's put that qualifier out. But what I would say is that to worry about whether or not Republicans are going to save us by getting their act together and figuring it out, folks, stop it. Stop it. It, it, Stop thinking that way. Like, quit it. That day's over. We need your head in the game in the right way. Okay. Are there still enough Republicans that will move over and, and help us save the Republic through an electoral process? The answer to that is yes, absolutely. And it's why I said the 2022 midterms were of much greater consequence to me than the 2020 general election. Because I Mm. knew that the turnout model was going to favor older, whiter, more Republican people. And if Democrats did even halfway well, we would be okay. We are absolutely there. And there is no evidence to suggest that at this moment in time that those voters are going to go back. Okay, The likelihood of those voters staying there since they have three out of the last four elections is not just a coincidence. It's not just a one-off. It's a trend line now. And so the goal of Democrats, the goal of, of the Biden campaign is to lock those voters down in cement and to, to fortunately uh, or unfortunately, the, 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 what is happening to do that to the greatest effect is the behavior of the Republicans. Biden's, yep. Biden's about to be impeached. They're going to impeach him or at least <laughs> proceedings in the House are going to start in the next 30, 45 days. That's batshit crazy. And once that happens, watch what happens to Republicans' numbers. They're going to start plummeting. And when you start to see Donald Trump on trial, and he's going to be arraigned in the next couple of weeks, once he's arraigned and has to go in there and say not guilty, he's going to raise another $20 million through his email campaign. His numbers are going to solidify further in the Republican base, and his numbers are going to drop further with independents. Okay. So that all of that and and look, Trump's people know this. That's why the best, and I'm saying the only, but I'm pretty close to that. Uh, look, a lot of things are going to happen in the next 18 months. So I'm not going to say the only, mm-hmm. but certainly the best route to victory for Donald Trump, and it's it's a very real possibility, is having a third party effort on the ballot. Because mm-hmm. mathematically, in a bilateral fight, in a bilateral fight, a head to head between an R and a D, what makes us think? That when Democrats have won the popular vote seven out of the last eight times, that the fortunes have changed to the better 
for Donald Trump and the Republicans to move that swath. Donald Trump, if it's a head-to-head, will lose this election, the popular vote, by the largest margin in history. The question is the Electoral College, where all of the demographics are moving against him. Okay, the best way is to have a third party candidate or or effort on the ballot that wedges enough voters off of Joe Biden to allow Trump's base, which is going to be at 47, 48 percent. It's not going down, folks, but it's not going up either. It's 47, 48. That that number becomes a win in the 270 count if there's somebody else on the ballot. Well, I, I got to get the door. Somebody's knock. Oh, oh, hey, it's uh, it's uh, no labels. No labels has entered the chat. They would like a word. <laughs> yeah. By the way, there's been there's there's been a lot of um, uh, talk among legal circles the last few weeks about this theory that the 14th Amendment will bar Donald Trump from becoming president, it's not going to work. Um, that's, that's, that's another, uh, just the Cliff's Notes here is, it's complete fantasy. It's not going to work. Don't put your hopes in that basket. The best chance is like actually beating him at the ballot box. So don't think that you are for a minute going to prevent him from being on the ballot by invoking this, uh, this, this fringe theory. Um, that, 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 that it would also that you're talking massive violence if that happens. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, was, it just will never happen. Yeah, uh, but for some reason it's like liberal porn on Twitter. Like everybody's like, "Oh, we can actually do this. Get him off." Yeah, he did inside an insurrection. Yeah, Fourteenth Amendment says no. You can't do that. This it is reminds a- me. It reminds me. I was getting calls <laughs> from people saying, "Can can you call some of your Republican elector friends and have them flip on Donald Trump?" You know, in 2016, and I was like, "You guys don't get what just happened. <laughs> you don't. These understand. people want Donald Trump elected. First of all, and second, that was just the, the upheaval, the social unrest, the violence that would hit the streets would be on. Un- un- <sighs> yeah. Un- calculable. Anyway, keep your eye on the ball is the ballot box. Now that we are up to speed on some of the biggest stories this week anyway, let's talk about what we're watching under the radar. Hagar, what'd you bring? So um, this one, you know, I get very emotional about wrongfully detained individuals abroad. And August 30th, so um, day before we taped this, August 30th was International Day of Victims of Enforced Disappearances. And so I, and and this week also, Russia extended its pretrial detention of Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich by an additional three months to November 30th, which is deeply disappointing. And uh, so now he's been in jail so far in a Russian prison for five months. Um, and I... Uh, this step to me, the reason it's, you know, I've been following Evan's case because I find that his his case is not being covered enough. You know, when Brittany Griner was detained, we heard about it every day. And that's good. By the way, that's how I thought it should be. And with Evan Gershkovich, I just don't feel like we're hearing about it enough. And so, um, so I wanted to kind of take a moment to remember him, but also it's important because the reason the Russians detained him, they extended that pretrial detention is because they are running out of cards and they're desperate. And the way things are going right now uh, with Ukraine making advances in its counteroffensive, furthering its advances inside Russian territory against Moscow in particular, um, Russia is grappling at, at, they're grasping at every card they can find, whether it's being difficult at the UN Security Council, blocking things that have nothing to do with Ukraine, um, uh, uh, thing, uh, targeting the withdrawing from the Ukraine grain deal and targeting grain hangers. Um, targeting cultural sites in Ukraine. They are literally trying to find, grasp at any straw they can. And this is one of those straws. So it's unfortunate because I expect this detention to go on 
more further um, because the, it's it's one of their it's going to be one of their biggest bargaining chips with the United States. Uh, so watching that very closely and just praying for him. Here, here, Mike. What do you got? Well, somewhat related. I, I, I'm watching, and I just really urge everybody to continue to watch and not forget what's happening in Ukraine with the counteroffensive as we start to peter out of the summer months, because it's going to have huge implications on the presidential election, the status of Ukraine's success or lack of success, uh, or the spin about what's happening or not happening is going to be really, really important, um, especially as. And again, as we've talked about and as was predicted, the anti-Ukrainian segment of the Republican Party starts to um, take shape and take force with uh, the rise of the Vivek Ramaswamy's. The uh, you know DeSantis himself is you know really downplayed what this has been, you know, uh, dismissing it as this fight over geography. Donald Trump, who's getting more brazen, basically about what's going on. The three top leaders in the Republican Party. Um, are are really pro-Russian uh, messengers. So um, it appears that there have been some breakthroughs, particularly in the South. I think the counteroffensive is going slower than we would like, but if in the next 45, 60 days something significant happens, and I think the possibility, I'm certainly not a military expert, but tactically, if I do follow it every day to see what's happening. If there are breaks uh, in the Southern Front, and from some of the activity that you're seeing in Moscow behind Russia's lines suggests that the Ukrainians are moving much more offensively, um, I think we could see hopefully a, a shift in uh, the narrative of, of this slow counteroffensive. And I think that couldn't be anything but positive for our own democracy, for our own debates here internally, for the people of Ukraine and for this global fight against authoritarianism. So eyes on the Donbass, eyes on Ukraine and uh, Godspeed, God willing. Indeed. All right, gang. Uh, before we flip over to Politicology Plus, where we're going to talk about how AI is changing the world and how it will likely shape our elections and be a tool for bad actors on the world stage. Where can everybody find you on the internet these days, Mike? I was going to say threads because that was the only place that was not <laughs> listed as the, where the Chinese were. Um, but, but you can find me on threads if you really want to, but you can find me on X or Twitter or whatever, Twitter X, whatever it's called. Are you still uh, doing Mastodon? I am. I am. Okay. I, okay. I like okay. Mastodon. Um, okay. I don't like it as much only because there aren't as many people there, right? You got to fish where the yeah, fish right. are, which is what right. the problem is with Twitter and with X, yeah. but as it is yeah. atomizing, you know, I'm, I'm also one of those people that's going to strongly resist being everywhere. Um, yeah. but you know, you got to pick your channel for the moment that remains, uh, Twitter or X for me. And I'm at Madrid underscore Mike. And, uh, Hagar, what about you? Uh, I'm really on every platform that, uh, wherever your, your heart fancies, um, on all of them. And I'm at either geek out with Hagar and, oh, and my show is at, oh, my world show across social media. And, uh, but, but we live on YouTube in particular, uh, please give us a, a follow or subscribe. It's free of course. And, um, it means the world. So, oh, my world on YouTube and at, oh, my world show across, across social media platforms. So I should mention this, Mike. I think you mentioned Noster at one point. Are you still on Noster or Damus? Have you ever tried that? So I've been paying attention to this. Uh, I guess I'll just throw it in here before we flip over to Plus, but um, to this really exciting development in decentralized social media. And this is like, to, to explain how significant this is, think about how we're accustomed to a 
smart server and dumb client model. Um, if you understand what I mean by that, like Facebook is a smart server. You have a phone that's essentially a client to access that server. And none of the information is stored on your on your client, on your phone. It's all stored in Facebook server. Facebook owns the data. Twitter owns the data. Substack owns the data, right? Those are all smart server, dumb client configurations of social media networks. Well, this, this new innovation that I'm super excited about, which is one that uh, Jack Dorsey, the former CEO of Twitter, founder of Twitter, is is championing, and there there's some really exciting work going on that's very quiet, which is the opposite, the inverse of that. Uh, this new innovation is a smart client and a dumb server model, where users cryptographically control their own data. You have the keys to your data. You own your data, not a centralized corporation, not a third party where your data can be sold or manipulated or uh, or um, taken advantage of by a Russian or Chinese uh, attack, for example. But rather, using the, the, the magic of cryptography, you're able to control all of that data um, because they can't penetrate the cryptography. So now consider the application, for example, of a marketplace that sits on top of that that requires no middleman and therefore no need to trust a big company with your user information, your payment details, your bank account, your credit card data, your address, your name, your e- all of that stuff. It is essentially unnecessary. It is removing the middleman of, of centralized data repositories that actually can control uh, transactions that can censor information. Um, this is a really marvelous innovation and it certainly hasn't come to maturity yet. I'm sure most people have not uh, heard about this yet, but I believe it is the new, uh, it will be a new paradigm in social media and the way we, we, the way we exchange data with one another and whether that data is words uh, or dollars, which are data as well, this is going to this is going to change, I think, the role of intermediaries and um, uh, and I, anyway, I'm fascinated by it. So, Noster is a new social media uh, protocol. It's not a company or a platform itself. It's a protocol for how to administer um, a a system like this. And so, there are new uh, social media applications being built on top of Noster as a protocol called like. Uh, which is an open source protocol you can build on top of it if you want to. One is called Damus. Um, and anyway, I think watch this space. It's gonna it's gonna really upend the way we think about um, about who 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 owns our data and who has who has the ability to censor what you say on social media. Um, anyway, uh, okay, let's go to Politicology Plus. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, we'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.